Uh, so we come today to the end of Genesis and the end of Joseph's story. Um, Joseph is, God has used Joseph to save Egypt from famine, famine, and Jacob and Joseph's brothers have all come to Egypt for food um, too and to be reunited with Joseph. Uh, today we're going to see the end of Jacob's life and the end of Joseph's life. Um, it is the end of Genesis as well. So if you've got your own Bibles, we're um, doing chapter 49 verse 33 um, and then all of chapter 50 through to the end. And it'll be on the screens as well. Um, When Jacob had finished giving instructions to his son, he drew his feet up into the bed, breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Joseph threw himself on his father and wept over him and kissed him. Then Joseph directed the physicians in his service to embalm his father Israel. So the physicians uh, embalmed him, taking the full 40 days, um, and for that was the time required for embalming. And the Egyptians mourned him for 70 days. When the days of mourning had passed, Joseph said to Pharaoh's court, If I found favour in your eyes, speak to Pharaoh for me. Tell him, My father made me swear an oath and said, I am about to die. Bury me in the tomb I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. Now let me go up and bury my father, and then I will return. Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear to do. So Joseph went up to bury his father. All of Pharaoh's officials accompanied him, the dignitaries of his court and all the dignitaries of Egypt. Um, beside all the members of Joseph ha- Joseph's household and his brothers and all those belonging to his father's household. Only their children and their flocks and their herds were left in Goshen. Chariots and horsemen also went up with him. It was a very large company. When they reached the threshing floor of Atad, near the Jordan, they lamented loudly and bitterly, and there Joseph um, observed a seven-day period of mourning for his father. When the Canaanites who were living there saw the mourning in the threshing floor of Atad, they said, the Egyptians are holding a solemn ceremony of mourning. That is why the place in the Jordan is called Abel Mizraim. And so Jacob's sons did as he commanded them. They carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in a cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre, which Abram had bought along with the field as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite. After burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt together with his brothers and all the others who had gone with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph, saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to give say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers for the sins and the wrongs that they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. And the message came to him. Joseph wept. Uh, His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I'll provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph stayed in Egypt along with all his father's family. He lived 110 years and he saw the third generation of Ephraim's children. Also the children of Macra, son of Massanah, were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. And then Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he had promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid and then you must, um, then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. Uh, I think an ending to a book can sometimes make or break the book, can't it? Uh, You know, when you're reading a book and 
sometimes you get those endings where the story kind of just feels like it ends and it's not really that climactic or sometimes you get one of those endings that makes you question whether the author even knew what the ending was going to be uh, as they were going through writing the book. But uh, when you get a good ending, um, it's pretty amazing, isn't it? It's satisfying, it wraps everything up beautifully. Uh, You go away thinking about that story more and more and more and the ending uh, perhaps sheds all sorts of new light on the meaning of the book that's gone before it. Uh, Well, as we come to the end of the book of Genesis, it's at one level a sad ending. Uh, Jacob, we spent three weeks looking at Jacob a few weeks ago, Uh, Jacob dies and Joseph, who we've been looking at the last few weeks, has to bury his father Uh, and then Joseph himself at the end of the story there also dies. That's sad. Uh, the end of an era, but at the same time, uh, there's lots of joy as this story comes to an end. Uh, Jacob dies, but he's buried in the place where he wants to be buried. He's buried in the land of his ancestors. Uh, Joseph has to bury his father, but uh, at least he gets to bury his father. They're reunited after spending so many years apart. Uh, And Joseph also dies at the end there, but uh, it's evident that he's lived this really blessed life where he even gets to uh, meet his great-great-grandchildren, which is certainly a sign of blessing, uh, as we would still consider it today. Uh, So there's all sorts of happiness in this ending as well, and it's kind of the two things going on, aren't there? There's kind of death and sadness, but also happiness, and actually both of those things remind us uh, of lots of the meaning of the book uh, that we've now gotten to the end of. There's death... It reminds us of the sinfulness and the brokenness of this world that we still live in, sin and death that's been there right since Genesis 3. It's still the reality. Uh, but at the same time, there is hope. God is faithful and we're seeing his faithfulness to his promises play out. Abraham's family are being blessed. They're growing in number. Uh, and actually that promised land, which was the third part of the promises to Abraham, uh, is sitting there. It's tantalizingly close. It's not theirs yet, uh, but it's coming. And the ending is showing us what the book has been showing us, that hope is not found in human effort. Actually, human effort's only ever led to that sin and death, but there is hope in God and in faithfulness to his promises, in his faithfulness to his promises. Uh, Well, we're going to think this morning about this incredibly meaningful ending to the book of Genesis. Uh, And today, actually, we're going to do something a bit different. We're going to focus in just on one verse. Uh, And that's because I think kind of everything we need to say as we get towards the end of Genesis can be summed up in this one verse. It's a very famous verse. It's the sort of verse that uh, you've probably heard of. You might see it on fridge magnets and that sort of thing occasionally. Uh, It's verse 20, which was part of the reading that Anarchus read for us. Here it is in verse 20. Joseph says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Uh, This really is such a rich verse, perhaps one of the richest verses in all of uh, the Bible, I think. Uh, And um, if you were with us last week, we we looked at a really long reading last week, we looked at 80 verses together, and it was epic, but the funny thing is, I think actually we've got a more ambitious task just trying to get to the bottom of this one verse uh, this week, because this one verse, it unlocks... The meaning of the story of Joseph, as we get to the end of the story of Joseph, it unlocks the meaning of that story. It also points back to the whole book of Genesis and and sheds a lot of light and meaning on the whole book of Genesis that we've come to the end of. Uh, The verse, at the same time, it doesn't just look back, it points forward to God's plan for the world and how God's purposes are going to fill out uh, through the rest of Scripture. Uh, It's also, at the same time, a really tricky verse. It raises all sorts of kind of tricky philosophical, theological questions Uh, And at the same time of that, it's also a verse that has heaps of real-life implication, uh, especially as we think about evil and and brokenness and hardship in our lives. 
Uh, we know in our community at the moment there's all sorts of stories. We've heard a couple this morning of, of awful things that are going on at the moment. Um, so if we're asking questions like, where's God in the middle of that, of that brokenness and that, and that sadness? Well, that's the sort of question that today's passage, uh, that today's verse asks for us. So there's all sorts of things we could talk about in this one verse and, uh, and we're going to try and get to the, to the bottom of it and we're going to try and break it down a bit. I want us to try and break it down a little bit like this today. Uh, I've got these three points. I want us to uh, see in this verse our guilt. I want us to see in this verse God's providence. And thirdly, I want us to see in this verse God's purposes. So our guilt, God's providences, God's providence and God's purposes. And on that last point there, we're going to spend a little bit more time and ask what are God's purposes for us and uh, what are God's purposes in Christ. So that's the game plan for unpacking this one verse today. Uh, and if you'd like that little outline in front of you, it is on the Sunday Hub as we, uh, as we go through. But uh, we're going to bring back up our one verse, this one verse we're going to focus on today. Uh, we're going to try and notice these th- three things. So uh, first of all, where is our guilt in this verse? That's the first one. Where do we see our sin in this verse? And we can see that it's right there at the start there, isn't it? You intended to harm me. Now, this is, of course, Joseph speaking. Joseph is speaking to his brothers. He's talking about how they've treated him. They bullied him. They threw him in a pit. They sold him into slavery. And a couple of weeks ago, when we looked at this part of the story together, we saw that actually Joseph's brothers, they're actually where we're meant to be seeing ourselves. That's actually showing us what we're like. We reject God's rule just like they rejected Joseph, God's chosen ruler. So here we go. You intended to harm me. What does this verse say about the sin of the brothers? Well, Joseph isn't letting them off the hook, is he? You intended to harm me. It wasn't that you didn't know what you were doing. It wasn't that you were just in a bad mood that day and you couldn't make good choices. No, you intended it. You're guilty. There's no getting off the hook for sin. Uh, the truth, this is a truth that's been hitting us again and again, actually, all through the book of Genesis. Humans are evil. Humans are guilty. We don't live God's way. Joseph's brothers, they were despicable. They threw him in a pit. They sold him into slavery. Even Jacob before that, he cheated his brother, he cheated his father, he was always after God's stuff, not God. Uh, Abraham before that, lots of times he didn't trust God, he pretended his wife wasn't his wife, he slept with his servant girl. Uh, We could go back even further, we could talk about Lot, we could talk about the Tower of Babel, we could talk about humans in the time of the flood, uh, way earlier in the book where God said that every inclination of the human heart was only evil all the time. Uh, Of course, we could go even further back, right to Cain and Abel and then Adam and Eve before that. Uh, All through the book of Genesis, we've been seeing that humans are guilty of wrongdoing. We are guilty of sin. There are no excuses. It's not a matter of, ah, there's mitigating circumstances. It's not a matter of, we just need a little bit more time to work on ourselves and get better at things. Genesis has been hitting us again and again and again with this truth. We can't look to ourselves for hope. There is actually a problem inside us. There's a problem with our very hearts. We're sinful. Now, just to flesh this message out a little bit one more time. We've, we've talked about it again and again through, through Genesis. Uh, but I think actually this is something really significant that our modern world still needs to hear. Uh, because I don't think we're very good at admitting our faults, are we? You know, we like saying things like, oh, I was in a bad headspace that day uh, when I made that mistake. Or we might say things like, oh, I've got no regrets. You know, I've made mistakes, but they made me who I am. You know, so we kind of like to put that positive spin on things or, or come up with an excuse or blame circumstances. Uh, You might have seen uh, earlier this year that thing with Will Smith hitting Chris Rock at the Oscars. Uh, I saw a couple of weeks ago Will Smith put out a video online. It was his big public apology to Chris Rock and this is what he said. I quote, 
I've analysed all the different things that were going on through my head at the time and I've concluded that that was not the optimal way to respond. Now, it's not like we don't apologise for things, but we'd much rather look at the circumstances around it and find mitigating circumstances to blame our mistakes on. And sometimes, of course, when we do the wrong thing, there are, sort, there are you know, that's true, there are all sorts of mitigating circumstances and all sorts of other reasons why we might make mistakes. But, you know, this is a world where brokenness is everywhere and temptation is everywhere, uh, but we can, at the heart of it, be sometimes afraid to admit the truth, can't we? The problem isn't ultimately all that sort of stuff. The problem is our hearts. Our hearts are evil, we're guilty. The brothers intended what they did, they meant it as evil, and the Bible is showing us that actually that's our situation as well, we're just as guilty as they are. Now that might make us feel a bit down, right? <laughs> a bit negative uh, to see and reflect on our guilt, but uh, you know, actually I, I must admit I kind of find this a little bit refreshing, I almost find it freeing. Uh, there's something nice about just laying it all out there, there's no more pretending. You know, we can actually say, yeah, I have heaps of regrets, I have regrets every day, I'm guilty, I'm not the person that I wish I was. You know, it's almost nice to admit it, isn't it? You almost feel lighter just saying it. Um, in our house on Sunday afternoons, um, we have a bit of a Sunday afternoon, Sunday night tradition. Uh, our family's always a bit tired after church, we're always a bit zonked. Uh, so if we don't have anything on, we kind of get home, we hang out as a family, we always have dinner in front of the TV on Sunday nights. Um, we always have something very simple and unhealthy like sausage mac and cheese. I can tell you all about that if you want to afterwards. Uh, and the kids go off to bed, Annika goes off to bed after a little while too. Uh, and then 10.30 on Sunday nights is the Formula One, that's when Formula One's on. So uh, my Sunday night tradition is to grab a, grab a glass of wine, uh, decompress from the day and enjoy a bit of uh, Formula One. And I like staying up late, so that's um, good fun for me. Uh, last weekend, uh, last Sunday was the Belgian Grand Prix. Uh, and in the first lap of the Belgian Grand Prix, Lewis Hamilton took out Fernando Alonso, crashed into each other. That was great, sort of thing you love to see. And... Normally what happens in a crash in Formula One is the drivers fight over whose fault it was. Uh, and I was looking that way, I think Alonso started calling Hamilton an idiot and getting angry at him. Uh, but actually Hamilton, he did something very surprising. He said, actually, yeah, that one was totally my fault. Everyone's like, that's not how this goes. You know, that's not what you say. You know, you're meant to be fighting each other. But actually it's amazing how freeing and powerful it is to just admit that we're not the people we want to be. Uh, and actually, it's very, it's, it's almost um, like it disarms your opponents when you say something like that. Actually, suddenly Alonso looked like the bad guy for calling Hamilton an idiot. Uh, <laughs> it's actually not something to be afraid of. We can be honest, we're guilty. Our hearts are sinful. I think perhaps sometimes the reason we're reluctant to just be honest about our brokenness and sinfulness is because when we admit our hearts are sinful and that we're guilty, well, actually, what we're admitting underneath that is that we need help. There's no hope to be found in our own actions or our ability to make ourselves better. We can work on ourselves for sure, but we can never change our hearts. And so when we admit that we're guilty, uh, it means we're admitting our need for God. If, if, it means we can't look inside for hope. We have to look to Him instead. And that's exactly actually what Genesis wants us to do. Also, let's then notice what the verse tells us about God. Our second point is that, you know, when we're feeling like this, we can look to God's providence. We've already seen it in our kids' talk today and in that great kids' song, Remember the Lord, He is in control. Uh, and we can see it today in our verse, can't we? Here it is. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. God intended it for good. One of the things uh, that the story of Joseph has been showing us very clearly is God's sovereign control. 
You know, it's interesting through the story of Joseph, God doesn't actually get that much of a mention in the story. Uh, he comes up, it comes up here and there, uh, but none of the characters ever really take the time to stop or pray or, you know, build altars to him or worship him or anything like that. Uh, what this verse at the end, though, reveals, it reveals what's been staring us in the face the whole time, if we've been looking for it, that all through the story, God has been in complete control. He's been there the whole time behind everything that's happened. You know, the brothers were the ones that sent Joseph into slavery, but actually just as true as that is that God was also behind that as well. God was there sending Joseph into slavery. God was there sending Joseph to Egypt. God was there putting Joseph in jail. God was there bringing Joseph up out of jail and giving him that knowledge that meant Egypt and ultimately the brothers would be saved from the famine. What we see is we, if we look closely is that actually it's not even that God kind of saw the brother's sin and then kind of was disappointed about it and then used it and kind of managed to twist it into something good. No, in fact, just as much as the brothers were behind what was happen, happening, God was behind it the whole time. God was deliberate and intentional in what he was doing it. He, he meant this. He intended it. The same raw materials that on one hand are acts of evil and chaos and sin, well, from God's point of view, he's using the same things, the same actions, and he's using those things to bring about a good salvation. Uh, this, this ending kind of draws together the Joseph story and reveals this truth that's been there the whole time. Uh, but, get, but again, this, this truth has been there through the whole of Genesis as well, and often God's providence has worked always actually simultaneously alongside sin and chaos. You can find all sorts of examples of this principle through the book. Uh, you can go back to Jacob again. Uh, you remember Jacob stealing his father's blessing, and sorry, stealing his brother's blessing from his father, tricking his father. You know, that was an evil thing, that was inexcusable, that was sinful, but actually at the same time, God was working it for good, wasn't he? Because he was blessing Jacob, he was honouring that. We could talk about that very memorable chapter that I know some of you did in Growth Group where Jacob has those four wives and all the wives are kind of fighting each other to try and have the most kids and there's all sorts of mess and all sorts of sin and all sorts of brokenness and there's, there's mandrakes and there's messy deals and you know, there's all the raw materials there of evil and sinfulness and selfishness. But actually, you can look at it from a completely different perspective and see that at the same time, God is using that chapter and he's building the 12 tribes of Israel. You know, they're, they're doing awful things and God at the same time is intending it for good. And you can go back further too, you can talk about Abraham who treated Hagar horribly, but at the same time you can see God uh, working to give Hagar a legacy. Uh, you can talk about the flood, so much evil and destruction, but at the same time you see God revealing his justice and mercy. Or even things like Cain and Abel, a horrible murder, but out of it comes a people who call on the name of the Lord. Or even actually Adam and Eve, the original act of sin, but from it comes God's promise to deal with Satan. Actually, you can go back even a little bit further to the very start of the book of Genesis. Genesis begins with chaos, a formless world, darkness over the waters. Genesis begins actually just like it ends. You know, the raw materials are chaos and God, God is the God who can use that chaos and actually be bringing about something good. He takes the chaos of a disordered world and creates a beautifully organised and ordered world for us to live in. The whole way through Genesis, just as clearly as we've seen our sin, we've also been seeing God's plan for life, God's providence, His sovereign control. It's been hitting us in the face the whole way through. His plan for salvation is playing out. That's kind of mind-blowing, isn't it? You know, what a God we have that at the same time humans have been letting us side down again and again and again that God has been using it for something good the whole way through. Evil isn't a barrier to Him achieving His purposes 
Actually, it's those very evil actions that can be the same raw materials that he's using for good purposes. And that is pretty mind-blowing, but at the same time, it can also be a bit mind-boggling, can't it, to kind of understand how that could work. And we might just pause a little bit to consider that question. It is a really tricky one. Uh, You know, we, we could ask things like, well, if God was using the sin of the brothers for something good, does that actually let the brothers off the hook for what they did the whole time? Because actually God was, God was on about something good. Does that actually maybe even give us a license to just go and sin? Because maybe we're creating more raw materials for God to go and uh, do something good with. Uh, and of course the answer is no, not at all. You know, as this verse has already shown us, there is no excuse for what the brothers did. There's, it was intentional, it was evil, they're fully responsible for their actions. And if we know the Bible, we can think too to the New Testament. Uh, We might think of Romans and the Apostle Paul who asked this very question. He says, uh, should I sin more so that grace may abound? And the answer, uh, by no means, by no means. And actually what we see here, we see it as clearly as we do anywhere in the Bible. We are in control of our actions. That's very true. We're responsible for our choices. But actually at the same time, that does not mean that our choices and actions are outside of God's sovereign and ultimate control over his world. God's sovereign control and our responsibility in the Bible, they're held together. There are all sorts of ideas about how you can possibly hold those things together, the sort of thing that nerds like to speculate about and argue about, and I include myself in that category, by the way. Uh, I think, for me, the best answer is something like, okay, well, we make our choices, but actually God is all-knowing. He knows the choices that we're going to make, and actually... Uh, he, he knows what choices we're going to make because actually he's the one who made us in the first place. He made our personalities, he made us, he, he put us in the place that he's chosen to put us. And actually by choosing to make us the way that he's made us and by putting, it in the, putting us in the places that he's chosen to put us, actually he's exerting a level of control. Actually, he, he, he's not just watching, he actually, he's actually chosen the life that we've had. He's actually in control of, of who we are and what we've done. It's a little bit like a computer programmer who kind of chooses all the inputs and the code and all the routines of the algorithm, and in doing so, they have ultimate control over the output. But you go back to our st- the start, our choices are still our choices. We're still fully responsible for what we do and what we choose. And that's pretty weird to get our heads around, isn't it? And it's pretty confusing, I'm sure, and um, I'm, sure, I'm sure I haven't explained that properly, and uh, I'm sure I'm not even clear myself entirely on the answer. Uh, But I think, if anything, that is the picture of the Joseph story. You know, God's made the brothers. He's he's put them where he chose to put them. He knows what they're like. They're evil and they're responsible for what they did. But at the same time, he knew what they would do. And not only did he know, he deliberately chose to put them in the place where he put them because he knew what would happen. He knew that he was bringing out about a great salvation. There we go. Nice and clear, isn't it? Well, actually, what is clear is that we choose evil. When we choose evil, we really are choosing evil. And actually, we should be honest about that. You know, we shouldn't try and find a positive spin on how we act or, you know, we shouldn't say things like, oh, I'm glad, I've, I'm glad, I'm glad I sinned because, you know, ultimately it led to something good. That's just saying, well, let's, let's, sin, so that, uh, let's sin more so that grace may abound, except doing it in reverse, isn't it? Uh, no, we, we own our sin. We own our evil choices that we make. But at the same time, we might be able to look to God and say, well, actually, even those terrible choices that I made, I can see how he's actually worked through those things for good. I can, I can see his good gifts that have come out of that. That doesn't mean I have no regrets, that I've done nothing wrong. It does mean that I have a good God and I'm thankful for his grace. Well, that takes us to our third point. You know, we're talking about God being on about good, working things for good. Uh, but the question is, 
well, what is the good that he's on about? What are are his purposes? We've seen our guilt, we've seen his providence. Uh, Thirdly, let's see his purposes. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. Two, accomplish, what's he on about? To accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. What is God on about? He's on about salvation. That's his good purpose. The good thing he's bringing about is the salvation of many lives, the saving of many lives. Of course, the Joseph story is such a vivid picture of that, isn't it? The country of Egypt has been saved from famine. So many lives have been saved. Neighboring countries as well have been able to come in and have food. Jacob's family has been able to come in and have food. So many lives have been saved from this famine. But uh, I have one more tough question for us to ask. Sorry, we're having to think a bit harder than we normally do today. Uh, One one more hard question to ask. Uh, God's on about salvation. You see the whole Joseph story, you know, God... You see it coming together with God saving people from this famine. But I think this question is this, why not just stop the famine, right? Like, why send a famine in the first place? I mean, I mean isn't God a good God? I mean, wouldn't it, wouldn't it be a much better way of saving lives by not sending a famine to begin with? You know, wouldn't that be a better way to save lots of lives? And, and you could say, oh, well, maybe Satan, Satan sent the famine and God, you know, had to respond in some way. But we've just seen that it doesn't work like that, haven't we? That God has ultimate control and sovereignty, and actually, what's more is you can go, if you want to, you can go to Psalm 105 and you can see, actually, the Bible says explicitly that God was the one who sent this famine. So, is, is God the one who's saved the people from the famine, but at the same time, he's also the one who sent the famine? So, is, is God just kind of saving the people from himself? Is this whole story just sort of an exercise in futility? That's, that's a pretty good question, isn't it? And actually, I think it's a good question because I actually, actually think it takes us to the very heart of what the Joseph story is about. It takes us a little bit deeper. Uh, Because did you know that actually the Joseph story isn't really about food? Did you know that? It's not actually what God's on about. Let's actually think a little bit harder. What actually has God done in the Joseph story? Well, he's taken these brothers who were violent and evil and awful and they hated each other and actually they've come out the other side and they're united. And they're selfless. You know, Judah's gone from a guy who, you know, was selfish and brutal and promiscuous and now he's willing to lay down his life for others. And the brothers have gone from these people who hated God's chosen ruler to people who've now come to him and are trusting in him. You see, the salvation that God's on about through the story of Joseph, it's not ultimately about food. God's on about shaping this people to be the people that he wants them to be. And actually, there's a little clue. You can go all the way back to Genesis 15. Genesis 15, and you can find that God actually has revealed this, this many chapters earlier. He revealed his plans all the way uh, back then to Abraham. He said, he's going to take his people to Egypt. That's going to be the place where they're going to grow into a great nation. That's going to be the place where I'm going to make them rich and prosperous. That's going to be the place where they're going to stay until the time where I'm ready to give them the promised land. Because the people who are in the promised land at the moment, actually, it's not, it's not, they're not ready to be kicked out yet. See, it's not really ultimately about food. It's much bigger than that. This is God's plan for, for making this people that he, he wants to make, for bringing these people to trust in Him, to making them the people that He wants them to be. Well, let's move forward then and ask if that's His purposes for the people of Israel and for Joseph and his brothers. Well, what's then God's purposes for us? I mentioned uh, Romans before. That was where Paul kind of asked that question about, you know, should we sin more so that grace may abound? Uh, Simon and I were chatting about the sermon this week and we noticed there's so much overlap between the book of Romans and between this part of Genesis that we're looking at. Romans is also a great book to go to see our guilt and the depths and the responsibility that we have for our sin. 
Uh, but the other part, of course, of Romans that has such a great connection to Genesis 50 is uh, Romans chapter 8. Uh, we'll bring it up here. Lots of you will know this verse, I think. This is another one of those fridge magnet verses. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be firstborn among many brothers and sisters. You can see it straight away, can't you? The connection between Genesis and Romans. God meant it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the salvation of many lives. God works all things for the good of those who love him. And Romans, it shows us what God is working for as well. It shows us God's purposes. What is it there? For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. What is his good purpose for Christians? Well, he's on about making us like Jesus. He's on about shaping us to be the people he wants to be, just like the brothers. He's shaping us to be the brothers and sisters of our saviour, Jesus. He knows that we're guilty. He knows that there's no use pretending we can fix our own hearts. So his purpose is to take it upon himself to make us righteous like Jesus. That's what he's on about. And this is so important to get our heads around because there is a danger in everything that we've looked at today. These, these kind of famous verses that we've had a look at, these fridge magnet verses, uh, they can sort of stay as fridge magnet verses and that can make them a little bit shallow. And when we think about all the brokenness around us and the different evil that, uh, and suffering that we know different people go through, and you know, we know there are all sorts of sad things going on in our community at the moment, if we just kind of keep these verses as fridge magnet verses, we can sort of just be very shallow about it and say, oh, I'm sure you'll see some good in that. Well, you know, be patient, God's going to turn it around. And actually, that's not really true, is it? That's certainly not really a helpful thing to say either. And actually, that's just kind of naive fridge magnet kind of thinking, isn't it? Just looking for a positive spin or a silver lining. And actually, that's one of the dangers of the whole Joseph story because, again, there is a danger if we, uh, if we see ourselves as the character Joseph, we might think, oh, I'm like Joseph. I'm going through this hard thing at the moment. Maybe I'll get to the end of it and I'll see that God's going to have some great plan for me. I'm sure all this suffering is just going to lead to me becoming prime minister or something. But it's, it's not as simple as that. And of course, maybe there are times where we do see kind of bad things that we go through and we see that they end up in a good result. I... Um, I have one for myself. I think of my first year at uni, uh, I was studying engineering and I kind of went into, the, went into the course kind of with no idea how to study and I was lazy and I'd, I'd never bothered to learn how to work hard and so I found it a real shock and I failed a couple of subjects and it was a bit of a rough year. Uh, but actually because of that year, it meant I ended up doing a fifth year at uni and actually, you know, this is all true by the way, that fifth year was a great year. Like I, I was involved in student ministry, I met Anakin that year, I might say like you know, well, that first hard year that I was going through, you know, that was just God working things out for my longer-term good. And I guess there might be a little bit of truth in that, right? It doesn't lessen my guilt of being a lazy uh, student. But also, I'm going to say, I don't think that's the, that's the sort of story that Genesis is meant to make us think about. You know, sometimes, sometimes we might see God using kind of hard situations for our good in our external circumstances. Sometimes we might see that happen even pretty quickly. But actually... There are also times, and we know this, don't we? There are also times that hard situations are just hard and they're just awful tough things and they don't necessarily really get any better. Or we don't necessarily see really any good coming from it. We might think of Joseph here to sit there in jail for 20 years or, you know, slavery and then jail for about 20 years. You know, he, he, he actually had a long time to wait before he saw any good coming from what he was, uh, had going on. He saw it eventually. 
I bet there was plenty of times in those 20 years that he was pretty angry at God and where God had taken him to. That, that might be actually where we're at, at the moment. You know, we might be a bit angry at God, you know, waiting to see something good come from the hard thing we've gone through. And maybe sometimes the answer is we just have to wait a bit longer like, like Joseph. Maybe, you know, we need to wait until the new creation and then finally, you know, we'll kind of get that perspective of seeing how God was using that hard thing for good. But actually, I think what's much even clearer than that is that if we're looking always to our external circumstances, we might just be looking in the wrong place. Because actually God isn't so much on about putting us through a hard time so that our external circumstances turn around and work together for a beautiful, happy ending. Actually, what, what was it that God was on about? He's on about making us like Jesus. He wants us to trust more and more in his plan for salvation. And so those hard things we go through, you know, we shouldn't be sitting there kind of waiting for the Disney kind of fairy tale happy ending. You know, when we take those verses off the fridge magnet and put them in the context of God's great unfolding plan for salvation, well, that's when we see that his purpose is something much deeper. He's on about making us like Christ, bringing us to trust in him. And what evil, what those suffering kind of situations should always be doing for us is they should always be reminding us of our guilt. The evil we're going through, you know, it might not even be our fault, but, you know, we're not innocent victims. We're part of the reason this world is so broken. And that, in turn, should remind us of our need for God. We need to look for Him and look to Him for salvation, not to ourselves. Uh, There's a great little story that I've heard before. I think Tim Keller tells it. I think I've heard a few other people tell it as well. Uh, It's a little parable. It's a story about a forest, and this forest is about to be cut down. Uh, And about a week before the forest is going to be cut down, there's a a lumberjack, I guess, or a mill worker who goes out to have a look around the forest and kind of survey things ahead of the forest kind of uh, getting chopped down the next week. And he sees, as he goes around the forest, he sees in one of the little trees, uh, he sees just a little bird making, making its nest. And he thinks, oh, that's so sad, you know, that little bird's making its nest and in a week's time these trees are all going to be cut down. So he goes over and he shakes that tree, makes the bird move on. But then the bird just moves to the next tree and starts making its nest in that tree. So the mill worker kind of goes and shakes that tree as well. And so on and so on. It shakes every tree until the bird eventually goes and makes its nest in some rocks. Well, sometimes we might actually feel a little bit like that bird. Or we might feel a little bit like God's, that mill worker. Every time we feel safe, well, then he comes along and shakes our tree. You know, we try and then take refuge in the next tree. Or we take refuge in this or that or here or there. But actually... What the mill worker is not doing is not evil, is it? God's not sending hard things because he's cruel or mean. No, he's reminding us that actually in this life, every tree is coming down. Those places where we're going to take, trying to take refuge, they're not safe places. You know, we try and take refuge in our career or our success. You know, it's not going to last. We try and take refuge in our family and, and make our family our big hope. Well, it's not going to be there forever. God is actually not doing the kind thing if he lets us feel safe in that situation. He's on about bigger things. He's on about salvation and he knows that salvation is not found in any of those trees. Salvation is found in the rock. When hard times come, when evil is all around us, that can be really hard. There might not be a silver lining. Things might not turn around in the way that they did for Joseph. But it does remind us that there is somewhere we can be safe, somewhere we can put our trust, we can put our hope in God. We can put our trust in Jesus. You know, sometimes it might seem cruel that God allows evil in the world, mightn't it? We might think he's not a good God because he allows evil to happen. I think we might even say from today's passage that one of the worst things he could do would be to let us live 
safe and happy and prosperous lives where we don't feel any need to trust in him. That would be the mill worker who leaves that bird alone and lets it build its nest in the tree that he knows is coming down. But if we do uh, feel like we wish God could do things differently or we kind of maybe think, oh, maybe God is cruel for allowing evil to come our way, well, I think there's two things we can remember. Firstly, we should remember that we're not Joseph, we're not innocent sufferers, we're, we're actually guilty. But secondly, we can also look to how God's purposes come together in Jesus. We've uh, seen in Genesis that our guilt and God's good purposes have come together in this really profound way. And we see the same thing in the book of Romans. Well, there's one other place where we see our guilt and God's good purposes come together, perhaps most clearly of all, and that's in Jesus and in the cross. Uh, In uh, Acts chapter 4, this is what Peter says. He says, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. There's your human guilt. They put Jesus to death. They meant it. It was deliberate. They conspired together to make it happen. But then Peter goes on as he prays. He says, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. It was always part of God's sovereign plan. His good purpose has always been to make his people like Christ. And ultimately, the cost of making us like Jesus was paid by him himself. Like Joseph, Jesus suffered innocently. And in taking the punishment for our sin, God could look at us and say that we're no longer guilty. We're like Jesus. We're saved. And so as we experience the evil and brokenness and the sin of this world, we can remember we're not innocent victims, we're guilty. God is in control. In Jesus, he has a good plan. And he might give us lots of good things, you know, he gives us good gifts. And any level of blessing we experience is a gift from him. But what he's really on about, what his real purpose is, is to make us like Jesus. He's bringing us to trust in him. So today, let's not put our trust in ourselves. Let's not put our trust in those trees and the things of the fragile world. Let's trust in the God who is in control. Whatever we're going through, we can trust in his great promises and in his great purposes. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you this morning for your word. We, today, we, we see our guilt, Father. We confess to you that we're sinful before you. We've failed to live your way again and again and again. And Father, we ask for forgiveness in Jesus. We thank you that you're in control. We thank you that we can trust in you. We thank you that your promises are sure and that your purposes do not fail. I know some of us are going through some really hard times at the moment and all of us experience the evil and brokenness of this world. That's hard. But we do thank you for the reminder, actually, that it is that actually this world is not safe. It's fragile. And we thank you for the reminder that there is a rock. Help us to take refuge in that rock, Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.